0: Contemplative studies is an emerging interdisciplinary field in universities. It explores the intersection of what we learn with how we learn, asserting that minds that are aware of their own processes, minds that take a contemplative approach toward learning, not only digest facts but also undergo transformative experiences. In most universities, contemplative study fuses brain science with techniques of Eastern meditation, often inspired by Buddhism.
1: Contemplative studies really took shape as this this program that was having Buddhist meditators on the one hand and sort of Western scientists and academics on the other. That's how it began. And I think now it's really trying to work its way out of that to become a more holistic, more ecumenical program.
0: We're talking today with Jacob Sherman, a professor of philosophy and religion and chair of the Philosophy, Cosmology and Consciousness program at the California Institute of Integral Studies. Sherman's the author of an article titled, On the Emerging Field of Contemplative Studies and its Relationship to the Study of Spirituality, which was published in the volume, The Soul of Higher Education, edited by Margaret Benefield and Beau Karen Lee. What does Sherman like about contemplative studies? What worries him? And what's missing? I'm Matthew Wickman, founding director of the BYU Humanities Center and host of this podcast. And now, our conversation with Jacob Sherman. Jacob Sherman, it's good to see you again. Um, I should mention at the top that Jacob is a former guest of our BYU Humanities Center. He was a guest out here a year ago for a symposium we had uh, about, uh, it was titled, What Faith After the Anthropocene. It's great to see you, Jacob. Thank you for taking time today to talk with us.
1: Thanks, Matthew. It's It's a treat to be here.
0: You know, so we're going to talk about your article, uh, which is titled On the Emerging Field of Contemplative Studies and Its Relationship to the Study of Spirituality. And that article, that chapter, uh, rather, appeared in the 2019 volume, The Soul of Higher Education, uh, subtitled Contemplative Pedagogy Research and in Institutional Life of the 21st Century. It was edited by uh, Margaret Benefield and Bo Karen Lee. Um, There are aspects of the title of your piece and of the title of the volume in which it appears that are provocative, I imagine, for many of our listeners, people interested in higher education and the humanities and the relationship between contemplation or spirituality and learning. So a few things we'll want to get to today include, for example, the emerging field of contemplative studies, what this is, uh, its relationship to the study of spirituality. You know, what is that relationship and why is it significant? Um, you know, going to the title of the volume in which your chapter appears, uh, you know, this relationship between contemplative pedagogy, research, and institutional or university life in the 21st century. What is that? Um, it's a lot to unpack. And I should mention here, BYU's status as a religious university and the university's spiritual as well as intellectual mission uh, really heightens my interest in these issues, um, especially as they're imagined to pertain not to religious universities only, but to higher education more generally. So uh, let's start here, Jacob. Um, simply, what is or what are contemplative studies and when did this field begin to emerge
1: so the it's a it's a relatively new field i think the field is still emerging uh it it began to take shape uh officially probably about a decade or two ago uh i think naming it contemplative studies happened early in the new millennium uh It's related though to, you could relate the whole field to a series of projects and inquiries and uh, scholarly engagements with contemplative traditions that had been going on uh, throughout a lot of the 20th century. The, The contemporary field of contemplative studies, which now has a sort of broad representation in various parts of the academy. There are a number of centers for contemplative studies associated with universities like Brown or the University of Virginia or Rice, uh, the University of San Diego, there's also uh, I, there's a, a working group at the American Academy of Religion that was founded for, uh, entitled the, the Contemplative Studies uh, group that meets annually at the American Academy of Religion and began to meet, I think, 10 years ago. Uh, I, I sit on the steering com- or on the uh, review committee of that currently. The, the field emerged from an interdisciplinary network of scholars who wanted to understand, to identify contemplative experiences and activities, to classify and understand them, to seek to uh, make scientific sense of them. But also I think crucially, and this is one of the hallmarks of contemplative studies as opposed to uh, many other disciplines you might find find in the academy, Also to include first person uh, critical observation or experience of uh, these contemplative states as part of the mode of inquiry that uh, contemplative studies pursues. And then finally, I guess a fourth prong of the the discipline is to reflect upon uh, the the meaning and uh, salience of these contemplative traditions, experiences, Uh, and practices for the university and for society as a whole. Great. Um,
0: Yeah. I'm going to ask you about a few of those things uh, in a little bit. Um, One thing, we had a scholar out here a couple of years ago uh, and he began talking a little bit, uh, and he was, com- he was both talking in admiration and kind of complaining about the presence of one of these big centers of contemplative studies at his institution. And was both uh, talking in somewhat of wonder and uh, horror about how much money they were raising. <laughs> and his, yeah. his, his, his implication was, uh, this is really faddish. Um, now, as you point out, there's actually deep traditions that go way, way, way back, but as an emerging field of contemplative studies, do you think uh, that this is something which um, was especially timely, like, why did it catch on now? Is this an institutional or cultural accident or is, something, is there something in the air that made this happen uh, when it did uh, recently?
1: I think the money associated with it varies widely. <laughs> so uh, I, I would be happy to find some, some big donors to help us out. But um, the, I, think the, I think part of the reason for the money associated with it, though, beyond joking, is that the interdisciplinary nature of the field of contemplative studies means you pick up on it from a variety of different angles. And sometimes you get a lot of biomedical interest and there's a lot of money associated with the biomedical side of contemplative studies. Um, this sometimes includes, uh, you know, touches up on things like psychology of happiness and well-being and things like that, um, but also neurophysiological studies of contemplative effects. And as with uh, a lot of things in, in medical research, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of money bound up with that. Uh, and thats it's not only, I think, for faddish reasons that the money began to flow in there. The development of new technologies for uh, more closely, um, for more, for more closely uh, looking at contemplative effects uh, in the body and neurologically, things like functional MRI, uh, but also things like the development of neurophenomenology, uh, that Francisco Varela pioneered that that presents a method for uh, for relating first person deep sort of phenomenological inquiry and neurological mapping uh, the, the the emergence of those as techniques as new scientific methods for understanding what's going on beyond just say Uh, first-person introspection, even the extraordinary sort of introspection undertaken by traditional contemplative communities or third-person neurological mapping, the capacity to bring those together really opened up some new possibilities. So I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, the iron was hot and could be struck at that particular time. It does also, though, reflect popular, you know, popular trends. And I think those popular trends will come and go. There was a huge spike in interest in this and a lot of money in it i think some of that will probably level out but there are also new capacities that we have that new capacities we have for inquiry that that i think will sustain and will not will become part of what we do
0: okay good a couple of things there i want to get into that you just said that I think are are, are um Important. You mentioned that contemplative studies are interdisciplinary. They can include religious studies and theology, but also philosophy and the humanities, the social sciences, the physical sciences, especially studies of cognition, uh, and so on. Um, and the question is: I, I just make things to defin- define them again. Uh, are contemplative studies a thing, or are they a mode? That is, does one study contemplation, or does one study contemplatively? And, you, and that's kind of a trick question, because you are talking about how it brings together third and first person, so I guess they merge at some level, but could you elaborate on that point a little bit for us?
1: I don't think the field has entirely uh, answered this question. And so people who identify with contemplative studies uh, by and large tend to be interested in the first person aspect being included in a broader way than... For most of our sciences in the university, so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of gesturing towards that, but at the same time, I think there there are a lot of a lot of what goes on under the umbrella of contemplative studies is basically third person scientific study done on contemplative subjects. Um, I, for those of us within the humanities and the religious studies and philosophical side of uh, contemplative studies, the theological side, certainly, I think a lot of us are uh, making the argument that we should incorporate uh, contemplative transformations of consciousness more fully into uh, the, I won't even call it a discipline. It's not a discipline. It's a It's an interdisciplinary field. But in within that interdisciplinary field, I think one of the things that we learn from studying contemplation, that we could learn even from studying it at a third-person level, is that sustained contemplative activity measured over months and years rather than minutes and weeks. Sustained contemplative activity can transform uh, the kind of cognitive and intellective states that people enjoy. And if that's the case, then that should also transform the way we think about inquiry more broadly.
0: Okay, great. On that transformative potential here for, um, and not just potential, but the, well, it's the potential, but the the observed effects of contemplation over time, this kind of goes to something, I don't know when it was that critical thinking became a cliche in universities. You know, everybody says they do it. It was the humanities calling card for a while and then everybody did it. And it's a very important thing to do and nobody says that critical thinking is not important, but there has been an effort in recent years to be a bit more reflective, uh, maybe a bit more critical about what critical thinking can and cannot do, you know, what it yields and where it falls short. There's a passage in your chapter that I find significant. I, I'm, I'll read it here. It's a uh, found at the bottom of page uh, 108, to the top of page 109. You say, uh, you write, while colleagues in other fields may sniff, scholars within both Christian spirituality and contemplative studies have come to see that there is nothing soft, woolly, or my own tradition would call warm and fuzzy, um, or otherwise embarrassing about the self implicating and transformative nature of studying spirituality and contemplation. Rather, a participatory approach to such matters may confer a critical advantage, for it allows one access to conditions, states, and forms of life otherwise elided or excluded by purely third-person objective approaches. Can you elaborate on what that, on what you're getting at right there? Because I I found this to be true myself, and I'm curious if you could sort of elaborate on that point for us.
1: Yeah, in one sense, it's it's almost a basic point that you could, that one could make. Through purely phenomenological argument, uh, but it's important, I think, when thinking about contemplation and spirituality and any of these aspects of uh, any of these forms of practice that aim at the transformation of the self. the The idea that the self is capable of formation and not just growth—that we that we can be formed and transformed through engaging in certain practices and habits of life uh, that change who and what we are uh, is deeply significant for thinking about how we conduct our scholarly research, how we can, and not even just scholarly, how, how we know, how we know in the world, because the tool, the organ by which I know the world is myself. And so if there's if there are practices that can change uh, or realize fundamental aspects of myself, and I think that's that's maybe the way to think about it. There's, um, and this is not this is not, you know, obviously not an idea that I've I've come up with. It's uh, it it goes back very deep uh, in the Western uh, intellectual tradition, which is the one that I know best. In from Plato and Aristotle to. Augustine, Richard of St. Victor, and Aquinas, there's the thought that the human soul has within it a variety of intellectual and moral capacities that can be realized through cultivation, which is to say through repeated practice and the establishment of habit, what Aristotle calls a second nature. And those intellectual capacities that can be cultivated, uh, that can be established as a second nature mean that then the intellect is capable of seeing things that it wasn't capable of seeing that seeing previously. We all know this from growing up as children, as we realize certain intellectual capacities that we didn't have previously. But I think it's also an aspect of the spiritual life, and it's also an aspect that contemplative practice uh, looks at very particularly, in part because contemplative these contemplative tr- traditions realize that there's a let's call it a third intellectual virtue beyond the two that I think we normally recognize in the university. If we normally recognize uh, a kind of noetic insight that allows us to understand first principles if we're realists about that sort of thing, which I think we ought to be, but, uh, or, and, and we also recognize the capacity to argue syllogistically, to to order a, a body of knowledge into a systemic, Kind of uh, science; uh, those are things that we regularly recognize and utilize. But beyond that, uh, Aquinas and Aristotle would say there's Sophia or wisdom, sapientia, which is not uh, which is not just a science that you order through chains of reasoning, but is a comprehensive understanding of the real in its in its deepest principles, in its deepest reality, not first principles, not just abstract logical principles, but a, a comprehensive grasp of what is, which is realized as insight and not as deduction or uh, or, or, or some end of a chain of reasoning. It's, it's realized through what the scholastics would call the intellectus, a kind of holistic organ of intellective perception rather than through the ratio uh, and a chain of reasoning. Yeah, good. And I think well just as a, just to put a button on that, I think it's that's that kind of contemplative intellective wisdom is what the contemplative traditions aim to cultivate. and it's not something we just realize without giving ourselves to that transformation through habit and practice and also I think grace,
0: okay, good. Grace. Okay, that gets me to this I guess question here. Um uh it's a good segue. You know, one of the purposes of your chapter um is to argue that uh the western tradition by which you, um, by the western religion, from which you primarily mean the christian, the long christian tradition has something to contribute to contemplative studies, right? Um I'll ask the question naively. That seems so logical to me. Why did that argument even need to be made? Wouldn't it have been a natural fit?
1: Yeah, uh, you'd have you'd have thought so, but but um, but no, it wasn't it wasn't a natural fit. The the discipline of or the field of contemplative studies really came into being with what I'd call a, a sort of budo centric uh, yeah. approach. In part, this that reflects a a very particular history going back to the first world parliament of religion in in the late nineteenth century. A history that saw. Uh, that saw Buddhist missionaries present Buddhism to the West as a kind of more scientific form of spirituality, as opposed to the uh, more supernaturalistic ways of understanding faith and reason that were attributed to the West. I don't think that supernaturalistic way of understanding faith and reason is really the best way to, to look at the broad scope of, um, of Christian history. Uh, it, 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 that itself, the, the idea that there's two tiers—one supernatural, one natural—and they're sort of on top of each other like a layered, like a layer yeah. cake, is a much more recent, has much more recent vintage than uh, than the contemplative tradition does within Christianity. The the supernatural-natural distinction, arguably, goes back, say, to the 14th century or something like that. Uh, and then gets exacerbated uh, in a number of crises since then. So for those reasons, it was thought, and and was was thought also by, to be fair, was also thought by a lot of Christians for a long time that contemplation couldn't be studied uh, using humanistic or scientific tools of inquiry because it reflected something that was inherently supernatural and so escaped uh, what, what could even be understood. Uh, part of the reason for... I think the renewal of interest in in contemplation and contemplative traditions within Christianity uh, in the 20th century was uh, was critical theological and historical and philosophical studies that began to uh, disinter this notion of contemplation as allied to this weirdly supernatural extra world, hyper world, whatever. Um, And to recognize that these distinctions while they might have served some uh, some conceptual purpose when they were introduced can also blind us to uh, really getting to the heart of the matter.
0: Yeah. Okay. So
1: for that reason, for that reason contemplative studies really took shape as this, this program that was having Buddhist meditators on the one hand and sort of Western scientists and academics on the other, that's how it began. And I think now it's really trying to work its way out of that to become a more holistic more ecumenical program
0: okay yeah good When i think about i mean take someone like william james you mentioned william james in your uh in your chapter uh here in this book and one of the things that james talks about when he tries to because james's book those who have not read the varieties of religious experience it's really a quite a remarkable book was it early twentieth, nineteen oh 1901 02 somewhere in there uh, he puts that together and he, he gives a number of traditions and gives accounts, spiritual accounts, these various traditions, spiritual and contemplative accounts. And he synthesizes it all at the end. He says that all these traditions kind of have some kind of foundation and a few basic tenets. There's a sense that there's some larger purpose in the universe. He says there's a, a capacity of ours to connect ourselves to that larger purpose, and there are ways that we can do so through contemplation or prayer that doing so gives us a sense of vitality and health and well-being. And um, there, would you find that, um, and what he's doing there clearly, he's wanting to sort of render a lot of these contemplative traditions, including Christian traditions, which do come out of kind of a, an investment in the supernatural, you know, God above the earth. And, you know, he's wanting to sort of reconnect that again to a sense of why this would be still a natural good for us, those of us who are living here on the earth. Have you found the Christian spirituality to be as responsive to that kind of direction as has contemplative studies from the more Buddhist angle, or is there still some tension between the Buddhist and Christian sides of this of this new field, this emerging field?
1: I think there's distinction. I'm not sure if I'd call it tension. Uh, I, I think um, i'm I'm not. I'm not personally invested in the idea that all contemplative roads lead to the same end. Uh, I think that there may be a variety of there may be a variety of ways of engaging the world contemplatively that lead to a, a variety of different sorts of contemplative consummations. Uh, the, the Christian tradition of contemplative practice does seem different than at least uh, many varieties of Westernized Buddhism. Uh, Buddhism has its own tremendous internal plurality with regard to some of these questions. Uh, And you get sort of different answers from Amida Buddhism versus, uh, uh, say, uh, a pure Vipassana approach or something like that. The um, within the Christian tradition, and in this way, it was breaking with antique traditions of philosophical contemplation. Also, you can see this in Augustine's treatment of happiness as the end of life in the city of God. Uh, part of Augustine and happiness for, I think, the Greek and uh, Christian tradition, eudaimonia, really was a way of speaking about this contemplative fulfillment and wisdom. Uh, and, and part of the argument that Augustine's making there is that uh, the the philosophical schools of antiquity promised eudaimonia, but couldn't achieve it on its own, because it's not in the nature of of human beings as we're constituted to be capable of a completely uh, terrestrial eudaimonia, eudaimonia that would be entirely within our power, a happiness, a contemplation that we could entirely realize. Instead, uh, the Christian approach to this has always been that we can cultivate and openness, we can cultivate attention. All all of those things that contemplative practice does about opening our attention, learning to sustain and focus it for an active dynamic receptivity. But it's it's receptivity that's cultivated. And then we wait for the real, for God, if you like, for the divine, uh, for ultimacy, however you want to language it. We learn to wait upon that through the cultivation of contemplative awareness. But we can't force that realization to happen. We f- can't force that encounter, uh, which is how uh, the Christian tradition continues to think of it, as, as an encounter, as something that's imbued with affectivity and relationship and not merely uh, a sort of um, distant knowing, uh, as might be the case in a more Aristotelian vein. Okay. So I think that's different. I think that's somewhat different than what, uh, the Buddhists are doing, but but not but not for that reason any less studyable, uh, and I think that's that's one of the that's one of the key arguments I want I was trying to make in that chapter is we can still study this it's it's about it may be about God finally but that doesn't mean we can't study the contemplative aspect of it.
0: All right, so. Uh... The way you describe it, you know, um, you break it into these various categories. There's a there's a measure of understanding of first principles. There's a capacity to sort of reason, you know, kind of ratiocinatively point to point. There's a larger encompassing wisdom that allows one to engage the world in a, a really interactive and dynamic way. You're, you're describing a complex, nuanced process, which raises the question of why we haven't or don't study this way more frequently. And I hear a lot of my friends who are thoroughly secular humanists talk about all those things being good things they want to engage. Um, One of the phrases you use in your chapter uh, about that may explain why we don't study this tradition more um, often than we maybe should is the phrase cognitive imperialism, <laughs> that we are in some ways the victims of cognitive imperialism. And you have different categories. There's cognitive imperialism and there is unresolved cognitive imperialism. There's the residue of unresolved cognitive imperialism. <laughs> it's, it's, right? But, the, but, the, but, but can you help us understand? So what, what do you mean by cognitive imperialism and how does it uh, end up defining so much of how we study you know, in universities?
1: So I, I, borrowed, I borrowed the, I was inspired by Harold Roth's uh, critique in some of this. Uh, Harold Roth is a Taoist scholar working at Brown who's done a lot to shape the field of contemplative studies. Uh, and the general idea of cognitive imperialism is, is that the dominant modes of inquiry that are preferred by the university uh, and continue to be rewarded by the university took shape during a period of imperial expansion and uh, really do reflect uh, certain presumptions about the superiority of historically contingent European ideas in the late You're
0: talking 18th, and 18th and 19th centuries. centuries. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, long history here. Uh,
1: it is a long history um but it's also it, it, it continues to shape uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the way we think about the world and a lot of our encounters with with people throughout the world both other peoples and encounters i think with our own selves aspects of our own self that that may reason and think differently uh, so in drawing on that i was just pointing out that often we we draw on those 18th and 19th century presumptions somewhat uncritically, even after even after some of their uh, even after some of the arguments for their hegemony have fallen away. Uh, there's been a tremendous amount of self self critique about uh, the adequacy or universality of uh, of those categories. Um, not to say that they don't have their proper place. They clearly do. Uh, But the idea that the entirety of reality is uh, transparently subject to 18th and 19th century enlightenment uh, description is just harder and harder to maintain. And throughout a lot of our fields, there's been ways in which that's been critiqued. It's been critiqued even within the sciences in certain ways, certainly within the humanities, it's been critiqued from um, psychological levels of understanding how we actually think and reason. Uh, And and certainly philosophers, we've spent a tremendous time uh, turning our sights back on ourselves and critiquing the adequacy of those presumptions. Often though, those, those various critiques are kept separate so that the university continues to still function with this dominant uh, it's called a cognitive ideology running as the, the de facto norm for the modern secular research university, uh, even while so many of its departments are sustaining this critique all around. Uh, so what I was trying to do is to bring those various critiques together and say, maybe we should take that seriously. And in taking that seriously, maybe there should be a space in contemplative studies seems like a good one where we don't presume Normative Enlightenment Secularity as the one kind of reason we can all agree on upon because it's clearly not
0: so. great. Uh, thank you for that. Um, uh, so, do you do you teach? Uh, let's talk about, about teaching about pedagogy for a minute here, if that's all right. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you teach contemplative studies and or do you teach contemplative study uh, to your students? Do you, and does it affect either this, the courses that you decide to teach or the way that you decide to teach courses? And do you notice a difference in your students' experience when you teach that way versus teaching in more conventional ways, just to sort of have them acquire a body of knowledge, which they, you know, learn?
1: Sure. Yeah, this is this is one of the interesting aspects of contemplative studies. Is There's a... One very dynamic side of the contemplative studies world are people thinking about contemplative pedagogy, um, and that can come into play both in the both in the subject matter, and in what's ta- and in the way in which it's taught. Uh, and those those two don't always coincide. Sometimes you can be teaching contemplative subject, you know, teaching uh, traditions of contemplation or something like that, and not be taking a particularly contemplative approach to the pedagogy. But you can also take a contemplative approach, pedagogical approach, to things that aren't necessarily about contemplation, for instance. Uh, I've had conversations with people who try to bring contemplative pedagogical tools into music studies, into understanding jazz, or uh, into literature studies. People trying to work with a form of um, contemplative practice for understanding novels or something like that. Uh, in my case, I'm I'm a philosopher of religion, and so uh, and a theologian, and so I will teach courses that engage directly with uh, contemplative traditions, especially in the West. Um, and it affects it affects my classes, I'd say, in, in two different ways. In the su- in the subjects that are taught, regularly drawing out from my pre-modern subjects the extent to which contemplative practice and aims. Animates their uh, their work in ways that are often elided uh, in standard histories. Uh, so, I'm currently teaching a pretty standard Western philosophy from antiquity through the Middle Ages right mm. now, and you could you could encounter a lot of these figures uh, in other courses and never learn a thing about the way in which contemplative practice and uh, contemplative ends were so important to them. Augustine in the City of God, John Scotus Erugna, Thomas Aquinas, uh, Philo of Alexandria, or Moses Maimonides, all, all of these various figures are deeply interested in the contemplative life. They see it as the end of life, and it—it—it's their work is shot through with it, and we can just miss it if we're not attentive to it. Uh, I encourage my students to engage in a, a sort of mild form of contemplative practice in their study, by inviting them to slow reading that involves the body. I think a tremendous amount of con- those those who engage in contemplative practice become very attuned to the way in which what we do with our bodies is so deeply bound up with uh, what kind of what what we do with our minds. Uh, so I encourage my students to sit down when reading from pre-modern texts, albeit in translation, uh, to sit down and to read them out loud, uh, so that they bring the breath and the body into their reading of it, it forces them to slow down uh, and replicates a form of contemplative practice known as lexia Divina that involves reading texts almost always out loud even if it's very very quietly sort of chewing on the words to begin with and allowing yourself to stop, pause, be drawn into deeper reflection on the text. We can get technical about all the stages in traditional Lectio Divina but you can also do it pretty loosely um, as I encourage my students to to just read aloud and let it draw you into these various moments of reverie, attention, maybe prayer, uh, and, and to see that as part of a critical engagement with the text and not just an ornament to, or, an, or, or a supplement to to reading the text, um, because we don't turn off our critical engagement with it, but we understand how these texts works more, more fully if we allow that performance of the text to realize itself in our bodies and our breath and our attention and our heart. Uh, that's part of what the text is doing. That's part of what the text did In its own context, Um, and so we can bring ourselves into that. And then in other courses that are more specifically on, say, uh, on, on if I was teach, I've taught courses on uh, medieval Christian mystical traditions. And in those cases, I will try to give students uh, the opportunity to engage in some, let's say, iterations of the practices that the the figures they're reading. might have also uh, the kind of practices those figures might have also done. Um, that one's a little bit more tricky because I'm I'm not at a confessional university. I don't want to ask people to uh, take on uh, practices or or spiritual traditions that aren't their own. Uh, but I want to give them the opportunity to to explore almost the way you might in a museum or something like that. Uh, to explore what that might have been like, to to imagine what it might have been like, and even to feel in your body what it might have been like, to find practices like that deeply meaningful and compelling and uh, regular in the lives of the authors uh, and and figures that we're we're thinking about.
0: You mentioned museum. It's almost like an interactive museum, you know. That's where what I meant. Yeah, yeah, right. Which is, which is, which is, which is great. It's a great. It's a great image. You know, when you mentioned having students um, uh, ex- do exercises where they read slowly or read out loud, you know, and are aware of kind of how these things affect the body and not just the mind. You know, I'm a literature professor, and something that many literature professors teach their students to do when you read poetry, especially, is read it out loud. Pay very careful attention to pauses within lines, between lines, between stanzas, um, to, to, to sounds, rhythms, uh, you know, alliterations, um, caesuras. Uh, all these ways uh, uh, that, that, that the body has of creating these rhythmic dimensions to these texts that do affect how you take in the meaning of a poem. It's a, it's a widely uh, shared practice. It's rarely seen as contemplative, but it does have that kind of resonance with that tradition for sure. I also just, as an aside, teach a course uh, called Literature and Spiritual Experience, which asks students to be reflective about the nature of uh, what they get from the text they're reading, to think about what the, um, how these things articulate things of ultimacy or value in ways that both uh, coincide and also confront. Uh, things that they value uh, in their own lives, whether it be religious or otherwise. And, and that reflective dimension in these classes has been a revelation to me seeing what this does to the way students learn, even about what a poem is and what it does. or uh, it, It's a more dynamic form of learning.
1: We only yeah, have a couple minutes left here,
0: uh, Jacob, and, and this has been great. I could talk to you a long time about this. <laughs> but let me just ask, let me close with this question here. Um, and that is, you know, for you, what's ultimately at stake in contemplative studies? I mean, what do you think the field stands to gain by reconciling itself with Christian spirituality? Um, or is it Christian spirituality that stands to gain by finding a foothold in an emerging field like contemplative studies? And And, or maybe that's one question. Another might be this. Uh, How emergent, finally, is contemplative studies? You know, how wide can its purchase be in higher education? Uh, Is there a future for it in uh, the broad and thoughtful way that you portray it in this chapter of yours?
1: I don't know whether contemplative studies itself will uh, become a permanent aspect of the university or a transitional uh, form, I think contemplation as allied to study, to the life of higher education and to the cultivation of our our capacities uh, to education in the broadest sense has been with us for 2,500 years and much more. Uh, so I don't think that's going to go away. And that's where my interest comes from, uh, just really the intrinsic value I see in in Comporting one's life towards contemplative ends, uh, and I'm I'm interested in contemplative studies because I'm interested in allies and dialogue partners and and things of that sort. I also think they're onto some really fascinating new ways of studying these uh, studying these aspects of the human condition and of human life that can uh, that can open up fields of uh, forms of knowledge that we didn't have about it previously. They, they, the neurophenomenological aspects of it; those are really fascinating and, and tell us some, something more about ourselves than we knew beforehand. Um, but what I what I hope for is I hope for a university, I hope for uh, an an academy that's capable of including uh, contemplative goals as part of uh, educational goals. Not that contemplation. Uh, becomes another queen of the sciences, like theology in the old days. Um, but that that contemplative ends be seen as uh, intrinsically valuable, rewarding ends for human life, and things that deserve that deserve our attention and our cultivation. And that's part of what I see the academy as existing for. Part of what I see universities as existing for. And so I'd I'd love to see that. I'd love to see uh, contemplation flourish within the academic environment. I love the university. I love university life. I've always loved the university, uh, and in part, I think I loved it so much because I came as a teenager uh, into my undergraduate years looking for something like uh, something something like theoria, something like contemplation, and. I happened to stumble into programs and texts that met that in me, and it just seemed like the most exciting thing that a person could do with their life, to think and study about these things. Uh, and I'd like to see more people have that opportunity. Yeah,
0: I, I, I share your passion for the university. And also, I share your conviction about uh, the value of um, contemplative study. And uh, I, I, was, I was very moved by uh, the article that you wrote. Uh, I love your work generally. Uh, so uh, it's such a pleasure uh, privilege uh, to have you talk with us uh, today, Jacob. Thank you very much. And uh, good luck with everything.
1: Thanks, Matthew. The privilege has been mine.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the BYU Humanities Center podcast. Think clearly, act well, appreciate life. This podcast is sponsored by the Humanities Center and the College of Humanities at Brigham Young University and is produced and edited by Brooke Brown and Sam Jacob. The music for this podcast is composed by Ethan Wickman and is performed by the Soli Chamber Orchestra and Nicholas Phillips on Albany Records. I'm Matthew Wickman founding director of the BYU Humanities Center and host of this podcast. If you're interested in other episodes of this podcast or want to know more about the BYU Humanities Center, check out our website at humanitiescenter.byu.edu. Thanks again for listening.